Amen. Isn't that good to know? Let's pray. Father, there is there's no changing, there's no shifting shadow with you. You are the trustworthy, faithful, sovereign God over all things. You ordain all things for their purposes, and all of the purposes are yours. It is such a wonderful comfort for the believer to know that regardless of what it is that we experience in life, the highs and the lows, the good, the bad, the seen, the unseen, the certain, the uncertain, and take into account, Lord, just the people in this room, the things that have transpired perhaps within the past 24 hours, within the past week, within the past year, for some people ordained by you for the good and out of love for your people to bring about your eternal purposes which are perfect in every way and will lead to your glory for you do nothing Lord that will not bring you glory and lead to your glory so I pray Lord today that as we look at your word and we see what the law, the good and glorious law is that you've given to us and sin's activity or functioning in and through the law, even that, even that is part of your ordained plan that even sin would be exposed and be excited by your providential determining by the law that you gave to do that so that man would not respond to the law by saying, okay, let's try harder, let's do more, but we would instead call out for a mediator whom you have provided for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now we stand. We stand as people, Lord, that have died to the law. We've died to sin. We're alive to Christ in him and enjoy that life that we have in Christ. And I pray today, Lord, that you would continue to, to, to build that up within us, to continue to um, define, enlighten, bring light and clarity to the role and the purpose of the law, sin's um, activity in and through it, but in all of it, God, governed by your infinite wisdom and goodness and care always. So we turn to you now in your word, and we ask and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, we're going to be in Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 12 this morning. And so you can turn there and get ready. We'll, we'll read through the text here in just a few moments. One of the things that I was struck by um, this week in preparing is one of the things that I shared with you guys just kind of now in my prayer is um, the sovereignty of God over all things. God's sovereign over sin. God's sovereign over sin's activity, its impact, its effect. And the giving of the law, I think, is one of those things that reminds us of that and reveals that to us. I think we tend to look at the law. One of the temptations is to look at the law and go, oh, that's bad. I don't like the law because righteousness cannot be found in the law. The law simply points out what's wrong with me, and God, would, God loves me so much, he would never possibly point out something that's wrong with me or um, that's a flaw in me, right? We live in a culture where all we do is affirm, and if you, I mean, you have to affirm anything and everything about everybody all the time, and if you say, you know, one word of correction or you bring one word of, hey, that's wrong or that's not right, then, you know, you're... you're cast out as not being for me, now you're against me, you're my enemy, um, whereas the law, that's the, that's the function of it. God gives us something to point out our flaws. Why? Because we need to see them, and in order to, in seeing them, we might turn to him for help and rescue, and um, that's the good and glorious use of the law that we see in our text today. Does, does, does sin use the law? Yes, but that's not because it's the law is doing something that God didn't design for it to do. That's exactly what God designed for it to do. 
so that we might turn to him from our sin and to Christ instead. We've talked about how the believer is dead to the law, dead to sin, but the law is necessary, even a good thing, as we will see today. It plays a pivotal role in, in Paul's conversion of his testimony as he gives it. Kind of, I think, a helpful way of looking at our text today is seeing it from an autobiographical perspective as Paul now as a Christian is looking back on his pre-Christian, his non-Christian days and, and what, who he was at that point and then the function of the law in his life as a non-believer as he sees it differently from the perspective of him now being a believer. But it's not just autobiographical for him because this is the role that the law plays within really anybody's life who ends up coming to know Christ. What the law does and how it exposes sin and excites sin so that we might actually die to sin. But there's also elements of um, the role that the law has played throughout the, throughout the Bible and throughout the nation of Israel. And we get to see, we'll see in a couple passages today, how the law at certain times was used to bring about revival within the nation of Israel. But it was short-lived. Why? Why could the law not bring up the preaching of the law, not bring about a sustained, um, you know, turning from their sin and turning to God and, and living righteously before him? Why couldn't the law sustain something like that? And we're going to see because that's, that's not what the law was supposed to do. They, they made a critical mistake. Just spoiler alert. Whenever the law of God was, reading, was read, the people of Israel should not have responded, we will do all that you have said. Essentially what they're saying is, we will try harder. When the law is read, you know what they should have done? As we will see, they should have cried out for a mediator and said, we cannot. Every time God's perfect standard of righteousness was again read to the people of God, oh, they were cut to the heart because they realized what they had done and who they were and how far they had fallen away. But you know what their response was? We'll do better this time. You can't do better. You can never do good enough in order to keep the standard that the law requires, which is perfection. And that's the point. In the reading of the law, everyone should go, I can't do that. God, would you do? And he would say, oh, I have done and I am doing. And that would be the proper response of us. And I, and I hope that we see that in our text today as we look at Romans 7, verses 7 through 12, but then also explore some of the other ramifications and ways that we've seen this exemplified throughout the Old Testament. So let's read Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 12 this morning, and then we'll work our way through it and notice some things that we see regarding the law and its relationship to sin. Romans 7, beginning in verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. If you ever want to have like a verse to hang your hat on, on what you should just like think about the law, Romans 7, 12 is, is perfect. Is there anything wrong with the law of God? No, it's holy, it's righteous, it's good, it's perfect, and we need to remember that. As Christians, we remember that sin's, um, sin's, sin's power and the law's power have been decisively broken. We've seen this in Romans already. And so the power of sin and its use of the law best describes its activity in the life of a non-believer. And so Paul is looking back on his non-believing life and his pursuit of righteousness through the law and how he comes to an end of that. 
of himself when his eyes are opened, and, and the law, in a sense, kills him, is what he says. And we'll see how that happens. The first thing that we want to notice, if you're taking notes, our first point would be a function of the law is to expose sin. The function of the law is to expose sin for being what it is. Remember, the law is not the problem. Sin is the problem. If you remember, back in chapter 6, we had gone through Romans um, chapter 1 all the way up through chapter 6, and we don't get to a command in the book of Romans until you get to Romans chapter 6, verse 11. All up until then, it's been explaining what God has done and, and kind of the way that life is, how God has created things, what's, how sin has messed all things up, stuff like that. But the first command that a believer is commanded to do occurs in Romans 6, 11, 12, and 13. And the thing there addressed specifically and first and foremost is the issue of sin. Where the believer starts off first is to know what its greatest enemy is, and it is sin. And he commands the believer, do not let, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. You have to deal with sin. It is the problem. The law and sin work together. The law exposes sin. And so then the idea is, okay, well then, is there something wrong with the law? Is, is, law, is, is law actually sin, as he says here in verse 7? Is the law that the law is sin, but by no means. No, the law is not sin. Though they work together, they are completely separate things. The law is not the problem. Sin is the problem. That's what needs to be dealt with. The law, as I said last week, is a, is a, is a gauge, a diagnostic tool to tell you where it is that you have gone astray. When, you, when your heart has drifted away from God, the law is telling you this is what you're doing, and you can see it by the things that you're, in your life that you're doing, that you're drifting away from him. It's a diagnostic tool that identifies what the problem is. It's much like any sort of diagnostic tool that you would use on your vehicle. Something you're, you, you feel and you find out that, you know, your vehicle isn't running correctly. You take it down to the mechanic. He runs a diagnostic test on it. tells you, hey, this is what's wrong with your vehicle. It's like any sort of medical diagnostic tool. It's like scan, cancer screening. There's nothing wrong. We, per, a person who goes in is not feeling well, and they go into their doctor, and they do a cancer screening, and they find out they have cancer. They're not mad at the screening test. That's not the problem. It simply has exposed, revealed what it is that the problem is, and then once you know what the problem is, you can work on it. The law is a diagnostic tool to reveal to people how they have drifted from God, and what it is that they're doing in their lives is, is showing the drift. So the law is not sin by no means. As he says here, if I had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. The law exposes sin for being what it truly is. You see, we've seen several things in the book of Romans so far regarding the use of the law. And he, he brings a few more in here in chapter 7. But we saw in chapter 3, verse 20, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. This is not the first time he said this. He would say later on in chapter 5, verse 20, the law came to increase the trespass. And he'll show us again now today that sin, or that the law exposes sin and defines sin and identifies it. And then we'll see another one in verse 8 that the, uh, the law actually excites sin and gives it an opportunity for it to express itself clearly for what it is. Paul says, if the law hadn't exposed sin, I, wouldn't have not, I would not have known what sin was. And again, this brings me back to the many of the uses that we see of it in the Old Testament. You think about, we were texting with Brother Derek earlier this week, and he reminds me of you know, King Josiah's reforms in the nation of Israel. Like the nation of Israel, they don't have very many, they have very few good kings. Most of them are bad, really bad. But King Josiah is one that brings about good reform, reads the law of God, returns the people back to faithful covenant worship of God. You think of Ezra and Nehemiah, post-exile, coming back, rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the city. A key component 
of that is the reading of the law of God. But you know what? I read through the end of Ezra and Nehemiah again earlier this week in preparation for this sermon. And you know how both of those two books end? Terrible. They have this, the, the people are living, squandering themselves, living in sin. The, the, someone brings the law of God back out and reads it, and people realize, oh my goodness, we haven't been doing any of that stuff. In fact, we've been doing the opposite, and we know what happens when people do the opposite of the law of God. He, he disciplines them and punishes them. And, and if in Ezra and Nehemiah's case, they've already been through it. We don't want to go back. Life in exile was terrible. So they bring the law of God out, and they read it, and people, they cry out, and they repent. But both books in the same way. People are back in their sin by the end of the book. Why can the law not sustain this type of heart change? Because you know what, in, in, in the case of both of those books, Ezra and Nehemiah, you know what the people do and they respond? We will do all that was written in the law of God. Oh my goodness, what a mistake. You couldn't do it the first time. What makes you think you're going to be able to do it now? The law was simply to expose you and remind you. Why couldn't it sustain? What does sustain a life of true repentance and contrition like that? Well, we'll see when we get to point number three. But needless to say, the law of God was to expose sin. It could never actually change the heart. And he uses the, the specific example of coveting. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Many commentators believe that Paul uses and chooses this specific sin of covet. I mean, he could have chosen any of the Ten Commandments. But he uses this one of coveting in particular because it's one of the ones that is so easily hidden within the heart. It's the one that um, many, most think that Adam and Eve succumbed to in the garden. You listen to the voice, right, of Satan. You turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3, 1. The serpent was more crafty than any of the other beasts in the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, and what does he use? The law he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any of the tree of the garden? What did God, what was the law that God had given? What was the command? Don't eat of the tree. What does he use? He uses the law. He uses, he uses the very thing that God verbally speaks to Adam and Eve. Did God really say don't eat any of any of the tree in the garden? But you see what he does. He takes the law and he twists it. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the, the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the free fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. People see the, the coveting there. The prospect of not just being under God's kingship, but to be a king was too strong of a temptation to pass by. The woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took up its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. What's interesting is that they see that the tree is desirable to make one wise. And yet in verse 7, it doesn't say that they became wise. It says that they became aware that they were naked and exposed. See, the enemy uses the law. He uses coveting in particular you know those things that no one else sees and knows about 
that you have within the heart, the stuff that you don't tell anybody, but that when you see an advertisement for it, or if you see someone else with one of them, or in your spare time you're thinking about, what is my life lacking right now? I'm getting my tax refund money. What am I going to spend it on? Something that I want. And these coveting desires that we have. And he says that the, these, these, these coveting desires that we have within our heart, the law exposes. And we would not know what it was to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. We would not have known explicitly and specifically what these things were and that they were offensive in the eyes of the Lord. And this is the reason why he would say in verse 12 that the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good because it's, it is exposing what's in your heart. And maybe you're the only one that's going to know. Maybe because you have these coveting desires within your heart no one else knows about it. You read the law of God, and, it, and he uses that to expose within your heart these inordinate desires that you have for something, for someone. The question is, how are you going to respond to those types of things? Well, we know what sin's going to do. The law not only exposes sin, which we see in verse 7, but our second point in verse 8 is that the law excites sin. He would say in verse 8, sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. All different versions and variations of covetousness. The, the sin seized an opportunity through the commandment. Produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Now, the, 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 the problem, again, is not, the, is not the law. I think people really struggle with verse 8 because we go, well, if, if sin uses the law to produce or to excite these desires within me, then there's got to be something wrong with the law. But again, the law is not the problem. The problem is our sinful desires. You remember James 1.14. People are lured and enticed when they're drawn away by their own desires. You have these desires that, that live within you for things that you know are not consistent with God and his glory and how people, how Christians should live. And sometimes we don't know what to do or how to respond to those desires. Sometimes we do know how to respond to what we should do, and we still don't do the right thing. But sin is excited. Remember, sin is the problem. We've seen that already. Seize an opportunity through the commandment. Again, we see this in the garden. The command is to, do not, to not eat, and so what do they do? They eat the specific commandment that's given. And it doesn't have to, again, limit itself just to covetousness, but to anything. The law says all kinds of stuff to us to put God first, to not make anything in his image, to not, to not steal, to not covet, to not murder. All of these commands in the law. And sometimes when these things, when you become aware of what these things are through the law, it produces in you all kinds of covetousness, all kinds of forms of murder, all kinds of forms of lying and theft and adultery. I mean, this is one of the things, this is one of the reasons why the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus does with the, the commandments is so incredible. Like you've heard it said, don't do this. Let me tell you, Adultery is not just sleeping with another person's spouse, but it's, it's desiring them in that way too. There's a, the law produces the coveting and murder and theft. 
to, to, to some to great degrees and some to small degrees. But the, the point of it is, is that all of it is sinful in the eyes of the Lord. When you begin to look at the function of the law and how clearly it exposes you for who you are and how the law, the, the sin then uses the law and is excited within you, become very aware of your need to abandon self and to turn to Christ. If we're talking about salvation here, the whole point of it is that the law would completely and thoroughly, pervasively expose us for who we are. And so that we would, we would turn from continuing to try to meet the demands and the requirements of the law and turn to the one who has already met them on our behalf. Like the demands are perfection, right? It's not just don't covet in big ways. It's okay to covet in little ways. And, and, it's, and it's not just, oh, you know, like don't covet a lot. It's okay to covet once or twice in little ways. Like, no, the standard is don't covet at all, ever, at any time, over anything, in any moment. That's inesca- the, the requirements of perfection are inescapable. Do you do that? Can you do that? The law excites sin with a non-believer. And that's one of the reasons why the preaching of the law is necessary. There's so much, there's so much confusion and misunderstanding regarding the purpose of the law of God in, in many believers, so, so much so that in many churches they won't even talk about the law. Because it's, it's Old Testament, and it's to be done away with, and Jesus fulfilled all that, so no need to talk about that which is old, and it's some, you know, the Hebrews talks about obsolete or fading away, but in what way is that happening? The law of God serves its function in the life of the non-believer. It's going to expose their sin, and it's going to excite, it may actually excite their sin as well. That's what the law is supposed to do. Now, for the believer, we, the law becomes a different, we have a different relationship with the law. It, I'm dead to the law. So it, it, its requirements and its penalty and its power over me have been broken. But they then become a, a helpful and useful and necessary guide for me as the believer to go, okay, well, as a Christian, like, I, it's not, I, don't, I don't want to live my own life. I did that before. Like, no thank you. That's what got me into the mess I was in. I want to live a life as a Christian now that glorifies God. How do I know what glorifies God? He tells me in his law. Don't do these things. And so then with a regenerated heart, I set out to want to live that way, to please him and to honor him and to glorify him. But I know that my relationship with him is not based upon my perfect obedience. That's already been met in Christ. Paul has done so much foundational groundwork of laying this foundation of saying, if you are a Christian, you are firmly rooted and grounded in Christ. Your relationship with him is not based upon anything that you have done, solely based upon the grace of God and the work of Jesus Christ. Once your feet are firmly planted there, you then move forward from there to live a life pleasing and glorifying to God, and the law tells you how to do that. And it always reminds you of what it is that God requires and what his standard is. It's still perfection. But the believer knows that they've had it met for them in the Son, in Christ. And so the law exposes sin. It, ex- it excites sin. And he says at the end of verse 8, for apart from the law, sin is dead. Not dead in the sense where it's not um, present in an unbeliever's life. But dead in the sense where they're just living out their natural sinful desires without having any real identification of what the sins are that they're actually doing that are wrong in the eyes of God. It's similar to what it is that he said back in chapter 5, verse 13. 
Sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Well, certainly sin is always alive. Sin is always counted against somebody, but not in the sense in which it was counted against Adam, where he was clearly told, don't do this, and that's the very thing that he did. It's similar to what it was in the Ten Commandments that the Israelites had. Don't do these things. Those are the exact things that they did. So sin is alive. It's just not, it's not as clearly identified. It's not as excited. Many commentators put it in terms of, oh, sin is alive and it's well, but it lies dormant. Still active, kind of like a, a coiled snake. Still there, still alive, still working. But when you read the law, it excites that serpent and he strikes, which is exactly what we saw in the garden, which is why we must, again, remember to preach the law in its proper place. The problem, is, again, is not the preaching of the law. The problem is preaching the law and calling it the gospel. That's the problem, which is, again, what so many people do. There's a distinction. You have to understand the law-gospel distinction that's laid out for us in Scripture. Law is do this. Gospel is Christ has done this. And until Christ has already done on your behalf, the law is exposing your sin and exciting it. Eventually to the point, hopefully, where we see in our third point, verses 9, 10, and 11, that we might die to sin. The law exposes sin, the law excites sin, so that we might, then the law would help us to die to sin. Dead people, people who are dead in their sins and their trespasses, or excuse me, alive in their sins and their trespasses and dead to God, need to see that they are dead to God, but alive in their sin. And the law does that. The law reveals to people their liveliness to sin and their deadness to God so that they might die to their sin and live to God. And that's what he says in verses 9, 10, 11. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. He, again, he's talking about his unconverted state. I was once alive. Oh, I was alive and I was well, living in my sin, not having really any problem with it. This is, what's interesting is that Paul writes this as one who, who knew the specifics of the law, and yet there was this disconnect for him for many years, and him living in his sin, being alive, knowing the law, living out the law, seeking to excel in the law even, and yet the law had still not, was not piercing him until God's appointed time for it to do so. You think of the way that Paul describes his life. Philippians chapter 3. He was alive. It said in Philippians 3, verses 4 through 6, Though I myself has reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. That's how he sees himself as being alive in Romans chapter 7, verse 9. I was once alive apart from the law. Calvin puts it like this. The meaning is that the sin which I did not observe, was so laid to sleep within me that it seemed to be dead. On the other hand, I, as I seemed not to myself to be a sinner, I was satisfied with myself, thinking that I had a life of my own. When he was alive, he was really slumbering and dead to the reality of the sin that was within him. But there comes this moment in time when the commandment came, he becomes aware of what the commandment requires of him, the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. And here, death is a good thing. That he would die to any form of pursuing righteousness on his own merits and his own effort. The law it, it exposed sin. It excites sin so that we might die to sin. He would say, probably the best way of 
putting it together. He says in Galatians 2.19, through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. It's kind of his short version in Galatians of describing what he's describing in Romans 7, 9 through 11. Through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I was once alive, alive in my sin, dead to God, but there came this moment in time when the law and its requirements, its standard of perfection, like you see Paul's description of himself in Philippians 3, darn near perfect. That's what he's saying, guys. I was, I was pretty much perfect. Not, not, not quite, but like I was close. And he still couldn't rely upon that. And at some point, the law became clear as to how far he had still fallen short. The end of his pursuit of personal holiness and righteousness and acceptance in the eyes of the Lord, and he died. Died to continuing the pursuit of of righteousness on his own. He would say, describe in verse 10, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. I thought there was life in it. I thought there was life in pursuing the law. I thought, I thought there was life in pleasing God by my own actions and living a, a good or moral upright life. But guess what, guess what it proved? Literally, guess what I, he says, you know what I discovered? Death. I thought I was pursuing a path of life. I thought I was pursuing life. I found death. I thought I was pursuing happiness. I found misery. I thought I was pursuing purpose. It was pointless. What what would he go on to say in, in Philippians 3? Whatever gain I had, counted as loss compared to knowing Christ. It was absolutely worthless. Everything that I had poured myself into in pursuing righteousness and favor with God was an absolute waste of time. And I was, I was still dead in my sins and trespasses. It wasn't until... He says in verse 11, sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. It's the same thing that he says in verse 8 and verse 9. Verse 8, sin seizes an opportunity to produce covetousness. Not only that, verse 11, sin seizes an opportunity through the commandment to kill me. Verse 9, he says, when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. He's talking about the same aspect. Sin coming to life and killing him. I love the way that he puts it, though, in verse 11. Sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. Do you remember what Eve's response was to God in Genesis 3? Three thirteen. The Lord said to the Lord God said to the woman, "What is this that you have done?" And the woman said, "The serpent deceived me, and I ate. I died. Sin seized an opportunity through the commandment. He gave them one. Don't eat of the tree." He eat, the moment those words come out of God's mouth, Satan goes, I've got an avenue. I know what to do. I'm going to attack at the very thing that God commands them to not do. And he deceives them. And they eat. 
and they die. Only here the law, sin seizes us, deceives us into thinking that we have our own righteousness, you know, post-fall. So that we would then, it would then kill us and we would die to any pursuit of eternal life or salvation based upon our own good works and our own merit. Paul discovers and proves that what he thought he was doing in pursuing life was actually bringing death. The Jews thought that life was found in keeping the law. Life was never found in keeping the law. The purpose of the law was to remind them of what God demands, to show them how they can't meet the demands and provide it so that they might turn from it and kill us in any hopes of personal righteousness. I'd said earlier in point number one, why couldn't the law sustain that type of living? Many times throughout Israel's history, the law had been given to the people and it had exposed their sin and they had responded with the affirmative that they would return back to God with covenant faithfulness and obedience and yet they couldn't. They should have done, instead of responding, we will do this, they should have responded in the way at least that the people of God had responded in Exodus chapter 20. I'd like for you to turn to Exodus chapter 20, because I think we see here a pattern, a picture of how it is people should have responded every time the law of God was read after the fall. Exodus chapter 20 is the giving of the Ten Commandments. He reads to them what the commandments are. And I'll start in Exodus chapter 20, verse 18. I'm just going to read 18 and 19. When the people saw, right, this is, they, their law has been read. The, the law has been thundered out from Mount Sinai. Now when the people saw the thunder and flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. The, why, the giving of the God himself just gave them the law. And what do they do? They stand far off. Why isn't the law beckoning them to come into fellowship? Because at least they see who God is and what his demands and requirements are. If you have done all of these 10 things, approach the mountain. And they, but what did they do? And they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us lest we die. What do they do? They call out for a mediator. God thunders his law from the mountain. And the people of God remain standing far off, not approaching. And they turn to Moses and they say, you be our mediator, because if we go, we're going to die. This is what should have happened every single time the law of God was read. We need, they should have called out for a mediator. Under Josiah's reforms, Ezra's reforms, Nehemiah's reforms, the response that they gave, we will do all that was written in the law. That is the wrong response. The response, the right response is, we need a mediator. This is why their obedience could not last and it could not be sustained. Because they're pursuing keeping it on their own power, on their own goodness. They should have been so mindful of their history over and over and over again. The book of Judges. 
as long as there wasn't a judge, a mediator, what did the people do? Whatever was right in their own eyes. Did they know the law? Oh, yes, they knew the law. But when God provided a judge, a mediator for them, what happened? He brought the people back to covenant faithfulness, but temporarily. Why? Because it was a temporary mediator. This is why the book of Hebrews speaks about the superiority and the supremacy of the ministry of Christ, because he is the mediator that is eternal. He continues to call his people back to covenant faithfulness because he has kept the law. He said, I am the one that keeps the law. The law has been thundered out. God has given the requirements of the law. It has thundered out, and you people stand far off. But I have kept those requirements. Come near, and I will mediate for you. And he does. He mediates for his people every moment of every day. People, unbelievers, we preach the law to them so that they might have their sin exposed. And then their sin might be excited. But we don't leave them there. We share the good news of the gospel, of the one who is, who is the mediator and who meets that standard and the requirement on their behalf. And they would come to him by faith and by faith alone. They might have salvation. Salvation cannot be found in pursuing righteousness on our own. It comes to us through the work and the ministry of the mediator. The law exposes our sin the law excites our sin so that the law would then help us die to our sin. And therefore, verse 12, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good because it is serving God's divinely ordained purposes. One of the thing, there are a couple things that I think are important for us to consider as we begin to prepare to take communion together. For believers, we, this is a time of, of rest and comfort for us that the mediator has met the requirements and demands on our behalf. I mean, you know that if you are in Christ, you have the demands met right now and, and forever, perfectly. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. And so this is, for the believer, like this is the time for us for worship, for resting, and for comfort in the fact that God's requirement has been kept for us. And we receive that gift by faith and by faith alone. There's, there's tremendous reason for gratitude and thankfulness of what it is that Christ has done on our behalf and what he received, that punishment, on our behalf as well. Secondly, I'm reminded of the fact, for, again, for us as believers, we work from our position in Christ and not for it. Be aware of the proper use of the law there are so many people that I've talked to that have been in, at one point, what they thought were good, solid churches. But they were, they, were, they were fundamentally, at the core, misusing the law of God, calling it the gospel, and using it as a tool to overbear and, and, and practice authority over people as a standard by which they have to keep in order to remain in the grace of God. Yeah, you're in by his grace, but you better work your tail off if you want to stay in it. That's heresy. The believer has fundamentally died 
to the power and the penalty of the law. It's been met by Christ. To say that you have to continue to keep the law is to take away from the work of Christ. It's to rob Christ of what it is that he has done and accomplished. May that never be so. And so many people, though, they're, they just don't know. I think, I think back upon some of my own years of preaching this gospel that was really just like full of the law. And I lament those years of not understanding properly the relationship between the law and the gospel. And the, and, and the newness of the relationship that the believer has with the law once they are in Christ and the proper use of the law in the life of the non-believer and in the believer. Distinctly different. People come in by the work of Christ. People stay in by the work of Christ. And people will have the work completed by the work of Christ. We cannot lose that. At the table, we celebrate that and we rejoice in that. And we confess. We do confess in the ways that we have not lived consistently with him in, in the law. But we do, not, we do not, that does not separate us from him. But rather reminds us of what he's done. And it increasingly um, brings more gratitude and worship from our lives for what he's done for us and the sufficiency and the work of Christ. So the communion elements are on the tables behind us. This is a time for believers. If you are a believer and you are visiting here today, we invite for you to partake of communion if you know Christ by faith and by faith alone. But if you do not know Christ by faith, I mean, if you're, if there is one, if there's an inkling of you that is like still, I'm a good person. I do good things. I'm not like so-and-so. I beg of you to see the error in your way of thinking. Do not come to the table. Anybody who thinks that they have anything to offer, one shred of goodness to their salvation, should not come to the table. Let the elements pass, but think upon what it is that Christ has done and the completeness and the sufficiency and the requirement for him to work on your behalf for your salvation and the, and the calls to believe, believe, faith, rest. That's the gospel. You come and you believe. You rest in him. So the elements are on the back table. You can get those returned back to your seat. And we'll partake of communion together shortly.